This podcast was recorded during the great coronavirus COVID-19 lockdown of 2020. Is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Are you excited? Can we just have a little less guitar in the earphones? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what we wanted to do. Hello and welcome to The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk, during which we will take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with our musical guests as they discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Now, there are many Beatles appreciation podcasts out there, and this one owes a debt to the fantastic I Am The Egg Pod with host Chris Shaw, which I highly recommend you check out. That podcast features mostly British writers and artists, and I thought, you know what? I would love to do one with Canadian music people. So, here we are. My guest today was a bit of a discovery for me. And that's one of the things that I love about music and books. Somebody can offer a suggestion, you give it a listen or read, and it's brand new to you to experience for the first time, no matter how long the work has been around. Jane Gowan is a Toronto musician who used to be a West Coast musician before she became a Toronto musician. She co-founded and played in a band called Spy Girl, which I describe as alt-indie pop. And Jane is currently in a band called The Real Shade. A mutual friend pointed me in the direction of The Real Shade, and I've been listening to their latest album, Horizon Diaries, and I would recommend it highly. For me, Jane and bassist Mary Harmer, drummer Don Kerr, and guitarists Gord Tuff and Tim Vesley have a bit of a, a cowboy junkies vibe with a dash of Velvet Underground thrown in there for good measure. And also, they remind me a little bit of a band called Mazzy Star with the fantastic Hope Sandoval on vocals. So that's the mix for me. Anyway, The Real Shade. Give them a listen. You can find their work on iTunes and their website is therealshade.com. Jane is also a graphic artist and photographer. Jane Gowan, musician, artist, and today plain old Beatles fan. Jane, thank you so much for dropping by to talk to me about the Beatles. Oh, hi, Paul. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. It's really exciting to talk about this. Well, they're, they're a fun band to talk to if you love music. And uh, I assume mm-hmm. if, if you make your living as a professional musician, then you love music. What, what do the Beatles mean to you? And more specifically, what's your first memory of hearing the Beatles? When did they come into your life? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm, they must have come into my life, you know, right from birth but my first memory of hearing them is when I would sit at the end of our couch in the living room and uh, I would sit in the space between the stereo and the couch 
and I had headphones on and I'd listen to, at that time, we only had the red album and the blue album. And um, I didn't really know there were actual specific albums because at that time I was probably whatever it was, eight years old, nine, ten. Um, when I really started listening to music that meant something to me and not just something that meant uh, something to my family, per se, um, probably 10 or 11. And uh, I would sit there and listen to the Red Album and the Blue Album probably over and over and over again and look at the pictures and read the lyrics. And I think at that point, the Beatles were, you, you kind of took them for granted because you didn't think of necessarily, for me, as a fan, how remarkable they were. You just enjoyed their songs uh, they wrote good music and it's only later that you could step back and say, okay, these guys set the standard for songwriting, for musicianship, for how to play in a band together. Um, they're really the gold standard for songwriters. I'd say we're all just trying to live up to what they laid down for us. It's funny that you you talk about the red and the blue. And uh, I think I'm a little bit older than you, but we're kind of in the roughly the same cohort. And mm -hmm. we didn't discover, discover the Beatles anew. We discovered them sort of the Echo Beatles, if you will. Uh, they pretty much split up by the time uh, I was 10 years old. It was, it was all done and dusted. And it's funny, a lot of people who I talk to those are their memories are those red and blue albums, which aren't really albums. That's right. And I had no idea, you know, at that point, you're just a fan. I didn't really even know the difference between a bass and a guitar, um, let alone know what kind of, uh, you know, harmonies were being put on or even what harmony was. I mean, I remember the first time I ever thought, what is harmony? And, uh, you know, I asked someone, what exactly is harmony? So, you know, but there they are, they're singing in your ear, they're those beautiful harmonies, those beautiful melodies, that those, everything about their songwriting is great, the arrangements. And um, I remember, I don't know if we got the Red Album and then the Blue Album, but I remember once we got the Blue Album, I went, oh, okay, now this is getting somewhere. Because the Red was nice, the early stuff, it's nice, it's great songs, obviously. But with the blue, I kind of felt I could dig in a bit more. I went, oh, this, this, this is starting to sound like something to me. These guys are pretty cool. <laughs> what was the one that you you can remember digging into for like the first real album where you went, yeah, this is. I, I didn't hear some of these songs in the red and the blue. Is that any kind of a memory for you? All I can think about now is the white album because I remember. But that was so much later that there was a period of time where I think that was I had it on cassette and I played it over and over and over and over again, but it was a really late awakening to realize this album is profound. Um, and obviously the white album has that indie rock kind of sensibility that uh, a little bit messier, a little bit grungier, a little bit more raw um, that I really liked. But after my first initiation into the Beatles, um, I kind of went straight to pl places like The Who and Led Zeppelin and started listening to all them. <laughs> so they kind of took over the guitar. The, you know, it was the 70s. So there we were introduced to all this amazing music of the early mid-70s. And, you know, it just took off from there. And in a way, there was you, you didn't look back for a while. It, it's funny when, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you about your choice in a second, but when you talk to people, uh, I, I didn't have the chance to do this with you, but when, it, when I'm going to have a guest uh, and, and I'm more familiar with their work, I'll go, 
just play a game for myself and I go, I wonder who they're going to pick. What, what album or, and it's interesting, Dave Bedini, uh, Rio Statics fame, he chose Sgt. Peppers, which didn't surprise me that much because when you listen to some of the stuff the Rios did, you can hear some of that studio trickery and experimentation. So, which is what Sgt. Peppers was all about. So that didn't surprise me. Um, mm-hmm. Jim Cuddy, uh, Blue Rodeo, has picked Rubber Soul, which again, mm. didn't shock me because uh, that was kind of a, you know, help Rubber Soul, Dylan-esque period influence for the Beatles back then. And, and certainly Blue Rodeo, you can hear that. Stephen Page of the Bare Naked Ladies formerly threw me right off track. He picked Tug of War by Paul McCartney. Uh, didn't even pick a Beatles album, and he was brilliant talking about it. Uh, oh, great, I'm sure. Yeah, so it, it's some interesting picks. Now, had I, if I could play that game with you, had I listened to your music a lot before you'd picked your album, and we kind of went in reverse, I would have pegged you from listening, especially to the stuff that, that you're doing with The Real Shade, what I heard, I would have put you more in the sort of help rubber soul uh, era with that, just there's, I don't know, there's acoustic Dylan-y feel to it. Uh, I, am I off base on that? Is it, did that enter your mind at all? No, because I do love that. And I love that sound. But there are so many sounds I like. I, I have a hard time choosing. You know, I'm not ever, I don't think I've ever been married to one one style. Um, so I'm going to go back and listen to those now with a different perspective now that you've said that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think I picked Abbey Road because, probably because of the production, to be honest, even though I love equally things that are very, very intensely produced and very unproduced. I love those two things equally. And I think somehow Abbey Road manages to marry the two beautifully. It really, it really does. Uh, it's, it's one Beatles album. I mean, there's, I love all of them, but production-wise, it, it won a Grammy for Best Produced Pop Recording uh, the year it came out. But you listen to it now, and even with the technology of 1969, it was so well engineered and recorded and produced that it sounds as good as or better than many contemporary recordings, which of course have the benefit of 50 years of technology uh, getting better and better. It, 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 I find it incredible. Uh, so let me put, uh, so Abbey Road, your choice. Let me just give, give some context and then we'll chew into it. Uh, and go through track by track. So here's some context. Uh, 1969, it's a busy year for the individual members of the Beatles. So it was a, a crowded year. Paul married Linda Eastman. Uh, John and Yoko went off on their bed-ins for peace. Uh, George Harrison's marriage to Patty Boyd was starting to crumble. And they were all involved in side projects. John had released Give Peace a Chance as the Plastic Ono Band. George had been spending time in Woodstock, hanging out with Bob Dylan and the band, also producing an Apple artist, Jackie Lomax, uh, in California. Uh, The Beatles had spent pretty much the entire month of January 69 working at Twickenham Film Studios in West London and their own newly built but not yet functioning very well Apple Studios on Savile Row in central London. And they were working on what was to become Let It Be. Uh, infamously really shitty sessions, strained. George Harrison walked out on the group January 10th during rehearsals. He bickered with Paul McCartney, infamously caught on film. 
the, uh, you know, I won't play anything if you don't want me to play it at all. That's my worst George Harrison impression. <laughs> and, then, and then had a row with John Lennon and he laughed and his parting words were something along the lines of, see you around the clubs, boys. He eventually came back and the whole thing, let it be, wrapped up with filming on January 31st. So then, only a few weeks later, on February 22nd, the band reconvened at Trident Studios in Soho, where they ran through 35 takes of the basic track for John Lennon's I Want You, She's So Heavy. On 14th of April that year, John and Paul recorded the ballad of John and Yoko in a one-day session at Abbey Road Studios. Just the two of them, Ringo was away filming The Magic Christian with Peter Sellers and George Harrison was out of the country. And on the track, John plays acoustic and lead vocal and McCartney plays everything else. Drums, bass, percussion, piano, amazing. And the entire group then got together a couple of days later to record Harrison's Old Brown Shoe as the B-side for The Ballad of John and Yoko. And then there was some more work in early May on I Want You, She's So Heavy. And then into April, they worked a little on Octopus's Garden, Oh Darling, Something, and You Never Give Me Your Money. Then they shut it down for two months. John was off the bed in for peace, give peace a chance, and so on. During this time, a very important conversation took place. Paul McCartney approached George Martin about producing an album, quote, like we used to, with the kind of feeling that they used to get in the earlier days. Martin recalled, Let It Be was a miserable experience, and I never thought that we would get back together again. So I was rather surprised when Paul rang me up and said, We want to make another record. Will you produce it for us? Really produce it. I agreed, saying, if I'm really allowed to produce it, if I have to go back and accept a lot of instructions, which I don't like, I won't do it. And so, Abbey Road, Studio 2, block booked from 2.30 in the afternoon until 10 o'clock at night from July 1st until August 29th. I guess you can do that when you're the Beatles. The final mix-down session and the determination of the final running order was held on August 20th, 1969. That day was the final time that all four Beatles were together inside the recording studio where they had changed the face of popular music. So when I give you that context, Jane, is it a sad album to you or is it a happy album? It's both um, because... We know we have hindsight. We know what happened, um, especially, you know, we don't have John and we don't have George anymore. And this to me is a it's a one last dance. And it's happy because they're all getting along and uh, the music that they produce is beautiful and they seem to be mutually supportive and playing like a real band. And and there seems to be a lot of joviality. Is that a word? Joviality, jovial behavior. Jo- jovial, you- joviallessness. <laughs> Joviousness. Jovialitousness. That's it. And, uh, and, and if you listen to those, the, some of the outtakes, which I haven't had enough time to examine thoroughly, Paul, I wish I had, but there's a lot of, you know, joking, that good Beatles humor, that English quipping back and forth. And it's, it's, it seems great. And so in that way, it's happy. Um, I think there are a lot of good messages in the album too, in lyric wise. Um, but obviously everybody wanted them to keep going forever because people had an, felt an ownership of the Beatles by that point, especially in the UK, I think. Well, I'll come, I'll come back to that at the end because there's a fascinating twist that I will leave you with uh, at the end because 
the lore is that Abbey Road was, they all knew it was the swan song. And there's an interesting twist that's come out just in the last 12 months that shed, shed some different light on that. But I'll, I'll save that for later on uh, in our discussion. Ooh. Yeah, well, you know, you got okay. to set a little bit of, uh, a little bit of suspense. <laughs> uh, so let's start things like off. It. We're, we're going to go old school. It's vinyl. And I'm going to take it out of the sleeve and put it on the turntable. And side one, cut one. Come together. Swampy, thick sounding, repeat echo, hand claps. What are your thoughts on that track? I absolutely love it. And um, I just listened to their remix uh, and you can hear those. I love toms. I'm a big fan of Ringo's toms. I love toms in general. Just give me as many toms and kick drum and I'm, I'm just happy. I mean, I love snare. I love hi-hat too. But you know, Ringo really had a heyday with his Tom Toms on this album. And I just, I love that. And um, Giles Martin in his remix, his last year's remix, I guess, because last year in 2019 was the 50th anniversary. Am I correct? You are. Um, he, he, he made them sound, he said, he made them sound so they panned all the way across those Toms. Yes. So you can, really, you can really hear the subdivision, every single subdivision, every single hit. Um, Whereas in the, in the original version, you can't hear that as well, but it still has such a magical feeling to it and kind of, what's the word, mysterious and dark. It starts it out really dark and that shh that John's doing, just the way it starts out. Apparently he was saying, shoot me. Yeah, yeah. When he started. Yeah, he's going to shoot me. But the but the bass in the original, you can hear you can hear the me a little bit more in Giles Martin's 50th anniversary remix. But in the original mix, mm-hmm. uh, the bass, McCartney's bass, kind of stomps on the 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 me part. So you mm-hmm. just hear shoom, doom 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 doom. Uh, and I'm with you with yeah. Ringo. Apparently, he just had the the toms. Uh, Reskinned or whatever you do with it. Is that, is that what you right. do? New skins mm-hmm. on, and they and they sound. Fan- now, where do you come down? Here, here's a here's mm-hmm. a great discussion. Okay, where do you come down on Ringo as a drummer? Oh, I love him. I mean, I love Ringo. I love Ringo's drumming for its simplicity. He he's just being who he is. He's not trying to be anybody else. He's unapologetic. He's a great drummer. Um, I know he got teased a lot by everybody, um, but I love his drumming. So yeah, I I, I do too. I think it, and he's I the and he has a just an unusual sound, and you really hear it on this the like the that drum fill just the the, the toms uh, for come together. And I saw him on a show. It was one of those shows where they have the the artists sit there and explain how they did things. And he was at a kit, and he was showing and. You would appreciate this more than I would, but his drumming, it's its almost like he comes in on the second half of the beat of a note. There's just like mm-hmm. this, which gives it a distinct sound. And he says it's because he's left-handed and he's playing a right-handed kit. And so he has to tuck his shoulder around and that just, that gives him the Ringo sound. Oh, interesting. That's, that's really interesting. I'm left-handed too, and I play a right-handed kit if I play drums. So maybe that's partly why I love them. Um, but, you know, I love busy drummers too. I love Keith Moon. I love uh, 
well, Charlie Watts, not a busy drummer, but I love Charlie Watt. I love John Bonham. But there's just something about Ringo's. His drumming also has some kind of a sense of humor to it, which I really like. Yeah, so what do you mean? Yeah, it just has personality. Maybe it is the use of the toms. Maybe it is because there's so much space in there. It just allows for interpretation. and uh, It's great. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> well, it, it's cool with this track. You talked about the remix. And uh, I was reading an interview Giles Martin had done. And, and he was remixing Come Together. And both Ringo and Paul in separate conversations said to him, Yeah, yeah, we were really good that day. Uh, and it's because the, the, the track, the, the main track before Unaugmented was essentially just played live. Uh, you know, they, they went in and they played it. And I mean, to me, they just sound like a band that's just right on it. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And, and I mean, I mean, if you had that feeling with, with your band when, you know, it's like anything, some days you have it, some days you don't, but it, it, it must be an incredible experience of a hair stand up on the back of your neck experience when you've got four of you or five or two or however many, and you can just feel yourselves lock in. Absolutely. There's no feeling like it. And it's, you know, what's that saying? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Whatever that saying is, it's true. I mean, you create, you create, uh, sometimes I've been in a rehearsal studio or a recording studio when you think, is there a fifth, if you're with four band members, say, my current band usually has four you think, is there somebody else in here singing or is there somebody else? It sounds like there's another guitar in here or something <laughs> like it. Sometimes a fifth band member is created out of the, whatever the four people are doing, if you're doing it right. Um, so it's, it's the, it's the dynamics. It's the, it's the um, alchemy, I guess is the best word for it. And I guess the, the basic track, you got Paul on bass, Ringo on drums, George on lead mm. guitar. And the, if, if you hear any of the, uh, the old mixes or the demos that, that you can find now. Uh, the first vocal take that John Lennon did, he didn't play guitar. He just did vocal and I think he rattled a tambourine and it's stripped of echo and reverb and everything. And it is just a thing of beauty, just a searing from the gut, uh, from the gut kind of vocal. What, what gives the song that sort of swampy feeling? Well, I'd say just the, the groove, uh, partly. And I think it's the way that, the, were they running the guitars through Leslie's speakers? Um, and the lyrics too, the nature of the lyrics, the way they're kind of a bit acid trippy and nonsensical in a way. Um, maybe the key of the song, I don't know what key they did it in, but just the, and the simplicity, I think the fact that they left a lot of space um, all those things put together and the bass, obviously that, you know, the more bass and toms and bass create that dark groove that really uh, gives it a mood, not a lot of high end. Yeah. Uh, release, released as a double A side single with something, uh, went number one in the U S in the charts for 16 weeks, number four in the UK, uh, didn't get to number one in the UK, they think, because the BBC banned it because of the line, he shoot Coca-Cola. They thought that was, uh, you, you know, the old Beeb, you can't, you can't advertise Coca-Cola on the BBC. Those Brits. <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting, too, that this song was originally um, written for Timothy Leary's gubernatorial campaign against Ronald Reagan. So, and, and I think then Timothy Leary got thrown in jail or something for drug use or possession. 
or some such thing. Yes. And so John went, oh, well, I guess that's it for him. I'm going to take the song anyway and use it. Uh, so, and I think the song was called Let's Get It Together originally. And then became... And then Leary was apparently miffed later on. You know, I can't believe he took my song and reused it. So. Well, that's the thing. And then, and then he got... Um, yeah, I don't know why he'd be miffed, but also miffed was Morris Levy, the publisher, Chuck Berry's publisher, who sued, I guess, John Lennon and the Beatles. I'm not sure um, because he had ripped off. Apparently, you can't catch me by Chuck Berry. So I, I went back and listened to that, and it is very similar. It is, is it? Uh, yeah, it is. Well, uh, Chuck Berry's song is kind of rockabilly, but when John Lennon recorded. I guess as part of the um, agreement after the suing, um, John Lennon had to record a version of this of Chuck Berry's song on his album Rock and Roll, and I went and listened listen to that because I'd never listened to that before. And it is it sounds a lot like Come Together, so <laughs> I'm thinking, well, you know, I don't know. They were onto something. In uh, in an interview that he did in 1980, Lennon said, "Come together as me, writing obscurely around an old Chuck Berry thing. I left the line here comes old flat top. It's nothing like the Chuck Berry song, but they took me to court because I admitted the influence once years ago. I could have changed it to Here Comes Old Iron Face, but the song remains independent of Chuck Berry or anybody else on earth, according to John Lennon." <laughs> In, uh, in an interview he gave. Fair me. enough, John. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's true. I mean, you know, you can't, you can only take these things so far. We're all influenced by other people. And, you know, you do, you do pull things out, little bits and pieces out of other people's music, sometimes without even knowing that you're doing it. So. So come together a double A side single with the second cut on side two. Uh, and this was also the first time that the Beatles had released a single that had already been available on an album. Uh, previously, they had not done that. That was a, that was a big thing of theirs because they didn't feel they wanted to rip the fans off and make them make them double buy. But this was uh, an exception uh, and something. The most streamed Beatles song since we've come into the age of streaming. It is the most popular Beatles song in the world for streaming. Lovely song. What does it do for you? It's just a beautiful love song. Something in the way she moves. There's just nothing like it. And it's unapologetic and it's 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 sweet and romantic and unabashedly sentimental. Um, I love the chord progression, the opening bass line, the descending bass line that goes from C down to B, B flat A. I think that's just a real signature bass line. Um, it's just a beautiful song. And it shows George's prowess as a songwriter. It had been demoed as far back as the White Album, and you also saw them mm -hmm. working on it during the Let It Be sessions. Uh, and then they approached it again for Abbey Road on April 16th, but then completely scrubbed the mm -hmm. whole version and came back and did a brand new one on May 2nd. So to, to you, he really... Uh, I get the feeling he really suffered over this one, really worked mm -hmm. hard on it. That's the feeling I get listening to it. Yeah. Do you think maybe he was just really wanting to impress the rest of the guys? I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, I think he nailed it, um, ultimately. 
you know, this one too was inspired, quote unquote, by another song by James Taylor's Something in the Way She Moves. That's the, that's the name of James Taylor's song. So I had completely forgotten. So thanks to you, I've gone back. Um, I've completely forgotten about that song because there was a time when I listened to a lot of James Taylor in the early, early days. And uh, that's a beautiful song as well. Uh, James did not decide to sue George. He thought, eh, it's fine. Um, but I think this is definitely one of the most beautiful love ballads ever written. And, and Frank Sinatra agreed. Yes. Yeah. He, he rec- so. <laughs> it's, it's, I think the only Beatles song that's been covered more is Yesterday. Um, this one has been covered by yeah. Frank Sinatra and, and many, many others. And uh, uh, it's what about the guitar solo? Uh, he he worked on several attempts and did his last attempt on the day that they also were doing orchestral overdubs for the song. The thing I love about that guitar solo is it's it's its own melody. Um, it's like it's like the person he's singing to is responding with her own song. That's what, the way I look at that guitar that guitar solo. Um, it's like the lover responding to whatever he's just sung to her, and it's a completely new um, melody, separate from the song melody itself. So, I, in that way, I think it's quite genius, and obviously. The, the guitar tone that George got was always magnificent. So, so, so Jane, from a, a musician point of view, it's uh, the melody is in C major, mm. from what I've read. It changes to A mm-hmm. major for the middle eight. How does that? That's how right. does that lift a song? But you you can't do it um, because you think you should. You've got to do it because you actually hear it, and that's why sometimes, like in this, you barely notice it. It just goes there, and you're in a different place all of a sudden. And you don't think that it's done because they were doing something by the book. They were doing something by their soul and their ear, you know? It's what they heard. I I just want to go back to you. You alluded to, we were talking about how hard he he worked on this song and on the solo. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the fact that he, he demoed it for them a couple of times, did a version, scrubbed the whole thing, started again. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been in the shadow of John Lennon and, and Paul McCartney as, as songwriters. I mean, maybe that had something to do with it. I, I don't know how you couldn't be. Yeah, I think absolutely. And uh, it must have been very difficult. You know, he must have questioned himself. And I think Ronnie Wood has the same uh, problem with the Stones. He says it's very hard to get a song into a Stones set list. Um, so maybe it just took him a while too. Maybe John and Paul were stronger, more prolific songwriters at first. I don't really know. Uh, and then George just sort of came into himself, gained self-confidence because it, it takes self-confidence, I think, to play a song, play a new song to a band of songwriters. Um, I know that uh, I've heard Los Lobos talk about this. Uh, both the guys... Uh, Dave Hidalgo and um, Lou, I can't remember the other guy's name, but they always say they, they still get nervous about bringing each other their songs, about bringing each other their demos. I mean, however long they've been playing together, 40 years or whatever it's been. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's just, you're, you're laying yourself bare when you bring a song into the band. Um, so even if you're the primary songwriter, uh, but I think with this one, George really showed that he was, he had the chops to, to be in that 
songwriting category. He was famously, uh, and I think he had it held a bit of a chip on his shoulder for it uh, from what I've read. He was famously taken uh, lightly by George Martin when he would bring songs in during the Beatles' career. And again, he's, you know, He's hearing songs from John Lennon and Paul McCartney, one of, as it turns out in hindsight, one of the greatest songwriting partnerships in the history of pop music. So uh, that's where the bar has been set. And George did some mm-hmm. some decent tunes, but even, even some of his best tunes before he got to this stage of his writing career, uh, I, I think most people would probably agree, wouldn't hold a candle to the best Lennon and McCartney tunes. And then finally he came in here and Lennon and McCartney have both famously said uh, at various times when the album was released, the best track in the album was something. So he, mm-hmm. he really blew everybody away. Uh, he did. And uh, it's a it, it, you know, beautiful, beautiful love song written for his, uh, his wife at the time, Patty Boyd. That's right. It is a beautiful song. Um, and the strings, George Martin's string arrangements are beautiful. Um, there's nothing like this song, really. It is. It's 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 set the it set the bar high. That's and, for sure. And George Martin's arrangement, perfect. Um, we talk about George Martin as a producer, but as an arranger, uh, I've, I mean, he's. I think that was maybe his his greatest his greatest strength. They were just such. They were so sympathetic to the song. Absolutely, and they weren't. His strings were perfect, and. He, I think some people complained that they were mixed too low, but I think they're perfect and they're lush and romantic, but they're not sappy. They're just, they're mixed very musically and arranged very musically and uh, interesting harmonies, not just standard, you know? So we go through our first two cuts, come together in something, great double A side, uh, and on to, on to the next track. <laughs> Cut, cut, cut three on side one. Uh, I'm going to put it out there. This is easily the worst song in the album. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silverhammer came down upon her head. Bang, bang, Maxwell Silverhammer made sure that she was dead. Yep, easily the worst song. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> and everybody else thought so too, I guess, except for Paul. Um, but uh, what did Ringo say? He just said, described the session as the worst session ever and the worst track we ever had to record. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it's driving me crazy because I don't like this song for a number of reasons. But now it's the only one I've, that's going over and over in my head. It's an earworm. So I keep on walking through the house singing Maxwell Silver, <laughs> bang, 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 bang. And, you know, uh, and so it's got something, obviously. I mean, the performance of it is great, but, you know. It's, uh, Ian McDonald, the uh, Beatles scholar and writer, he writes in a, a book called Revolution in the Head, this ghastly miscalculation of which there are countless <laughs> equivalents on his garrulous sequence of solo albums represents by far his worst lapse of taste under the auspices of the Beatles. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, you know, I think we can excuse them, but still, it's, it's, it's a disturbing little number, you know? It's about murder, unabashedly, unapologetically. <laughs> A Johnny little number about <laughs> bludgeoning somebody to death with a hammer. Come on. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, but it was a silver hammer, so that's okay. Uh, and it's you know the first the first two people to get off are, are women, which and one is the one he the woman he was about to go on a date with. So that's a bit that's a bit weird. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that as a woman, um, but I guess uh, you know it was that style that Paul loved, that kind of cabaret style. And maybe it was really could would have been better served in say a stage play or something like that than a record uh, album. John Lennon famously does not appear on it. He came in one day when they were when they were working on it, said sod this, and left. Uh, <laughs> the, the quote is: "I was mm-hmm. ill after the accident. He he'd been in a car accident when they did most of that track, and it really ground George and Ringo into the ground recording it. I hate mm-hmm. it because all I remember is the track." Paul did everything to make it into a single. It never was and never could be. Then Harrison characterized the song as as fruity, and we spent a hell of a lot of time on it. And then Ringo, the quote you referred to uh, earlier, Jane, uh, he said, uh, the worst session ever was Maxwell's Silver Hammer. It was the worst track we ever had to record. It went on for fucking weeks. I thought it was mad. <laughs> As you would, as you'd start to question your own existence uh, recording this song over and over again. Um, But, you know, one good thing, they use the word pataphysical, how they got that in there. So I had to look that up, obviously. But good on them for getting that word and introducing that little bit of weird, uh, what is it? The science of imaginary solutions. Mm-hmm. I don't even understand what that means. Well, um, and even in a song like this, Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. who could make a song up about anything, I think, and, and give it a pretty good go, he manages to rhyme quizzical with pataphysical. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. Now, the other cool thing on a, on a more serious note than, than his great rhyme, uh, mm-hmm. this was the mm-hmm. first track in the album as it was sequenced, uh, where the Beatles used the Moog synthesizer. And it it was used on four tracks on the album in the end, Mm -hmm. and this was one of them. And Mm -hmm. I I don't know what you think about this, but the use of the Moog could have been a disaster in the hands of some bands, and it would have dated the music horribly. But I think the one thing the Beatles had when you look at their catalog is exquisite taste. When you look at their use of the Moog, when you look at their use of the sitar and tape loops, there are bands who would have done an entire album using the Moog prominently in every track, but they just give you a taste of it. And the same with the sitar. Anything to be said for that? Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's just, you know, restraint and understanding. Don't put it in unless you actually hear that it should be in there. Like, go right inside your head. What do you hear for this song? And just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> you know, I always like to use the thing of uh, the vibra slap. It's a percussion instrument, but that instrument. And I think, okay, every album should have that just once. <laughs> That's a rule I like to live by. But, you know, with the mo, with the harpsichord, they would just bring these things in when they it, when it was absolutely perfect. And uh, it's, yeah, it, as you say, they had really good taste when it came to arranging and knowing when to hold back and uh, knowing when to walk away, knowing when to fold them. And, and so this side one to me is a little bit is, is a little bit patchy. Uh, you know, you're, you're cruising mm-hmm. along, you come out of the gate, you've got come together, you've got something, you know, maybe the strongest track in the album, some would say. Uh, and then you come into to Maxwell's Silver Hammer. But then, mm-hmm. oh, wait, 
right after one of the worst songs he ever did with the Beatles is one of the most stunning vocal performances ever given uh, on a pop record. Oh, darling, please believe me. I'll never do you no harm. Yeah, I love Oh, Darling. I'm all, I always have. And, uh, you know, I know it's a simple song. It's got that retro feel. It's supposed to be, you know, a popular sound and appeal to you from a kind of gut perspective, which it does. It's in six to eight time. It's a uh, great vocal. Um, lots to say on this one. Yeah. I've always just loved it. Just overall the sound, but you just want to, you, you just want to, this album, you're right. There are these little patches where you go, Oh, I'm not comfortable here. Please, sir. Can I leave? Uh, can I, <laughs> I have to go elsewhere. And then all of a sudden you're rewarded again. Well, the, the cool thing about the vocal is uh, he lived, uh, believe, I believe still has a house on Cavendish Avenue, which is right around the corner from Abbey road studios. Uh, I've, when I used to live in London, I, uh, I'm, not ashamed to admit, I walked by it as a fan a couple of times and sort of looked up, eh, I wonder if I'll see Paul today, maybe in the window. Never did. Uh, but the thing that it allowed him to do is a couple of streets away and he could walk over and he could get to the session a little bit before the other Beatles. And I guess he wanted to get a certain sound on the vocal. So he'd come in and he'd give it a run and he gave it several runs before he finally got, a, got the keeper. Um, have you ever gone for a vocal sound like that. Do you understand what he was trying to do as a musician? I do. Um, I don't know if I could do something like that vocally. Uh, I'm not sure I have the, the chops vocally. Um, I've tried to, I think he might've been trying to, you know, do some imitation too, a little bit. He was, it was almost like Paul was singing John in a way or singing. I guess a lot of people say that he was singing like little Richard, um, so I'm not sure if I tried to do that, if it would come across sounding authentic or if it would come across sounding like that's what you're obviously what you're trying to do. But with Paul, he managed to do it. So it still sounded like him. Um, and I, I always used to think that that was John singing on that track. But, you know, now that I listen with more knowledge, many years later, I realized, oh, yeah, that's Paul. He sounds great. I mean, he's got a great voice. The way effortlessly goes up to the falsetto. Um, he's got a very athletic, you know, nuanced, great voice, strong. But he's he's got so many voices, is what makes him, you know, the brilliant recording artist and singer he is. Because he has that. Think of the voice that he has in something like Yesterday, uh, or Mother Nature's Son on the White Album. You know, it's just a, a doe-eyed Paul just strumming on a guitar, singing beautifully, and then he's got this big ballsy of uh, you know little richard type like just and i mean what a vocal range and i think he probably had to pull that up from his boots a bit too you know uh to get to that point i don't know how many takes there were of this do you know uh he i, I just had he came in on a number of days he they started on july 17th and he came in and tried the vocal and he did it on the the 17th the 18th the 19th, several days. The keeper, I know, was on July 23rd uh, in Studio 3. Uh, they were coming in that day to work on the end, what became the end. And uh, he would got, got there a little bit early, 
Alan Parsons was the engineer. He nipped into Studio 3, which is the smallest studio in Abbey Road, and he banged off another one, and that ended up being the keeper. So it was four or five attempts before he finally got it, and right. that was the one that they that they stuck with. And I guess he made a, uh, a comment to Alan Parsons that he's relayed years later, McCartney saying, you know, five years ago, I could have done this in a flash. Maybe thinking, hmm. thinking back to the days of uh, Long Tall Sally or Kansas City or... Um, uh, the performance sounds to me a lot like I'm Down, which mm-hmm. was which was da- back around the Help era in 1966. Yeah, right. Well, and um, apparently he sang that one without headphones on. So maybe, you know, he understood what he needed to get done in that. I mean, so much of the, the, the difference between a success and a failure, I think, in anything is just deciding, oh, there's that one little thing I have to change or that one little hurdle I have to get over and do something slightly differently from the way I'd normally do it in order for achieve, to achieve what I'm trying to achieve um, with a something creative, I suppose, like you know, a song or a piece of art or whatever it is. And I think he he knew enough about his own abilities and what he wanted to get. He knew enough to say, okay, I'm going to do this without headphones, um, even though it's not the way that, you know, not what's normally done. I think it was because he wanted to make it feel like he was singing to a live audience. So I think that's kind of genius, you know, that he was able to step back and go, yeah, I'll just try it this way. And it's funny you mentioned you thought it was John Lennon singing because John Lennon said in later interviews that he loved the song, but he thinks that Paul should have let him sing it, that he would have done a better job. So it's, <laughs> that's right. Of course strange. he did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then the a little bit of trivia, the, the doo-wop three-part harmony vocals that you have uh, Harrison, uh, Lennon, and McCartney, that their voices were just so beautiful together as they are in this album. They were recorded on August the 11th, and as it turned out, that was John Lennon's last ever recording session. Not mixing, but the last time he recorded with all of the fellow Beatles in attendance. Oh, interesting. So that has that song, has that little piece of, of Beatles infamy. Yeah, there there are so many lasts in this in this album, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. It, which again comes back to: is it a sad album or is it a happy album? It's, That's it, right. it's, it's a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, so we go out of "Oh Darling" and second last cut on side one, and good old Octopus's Garden, uh, sort of a poor man's yellow submarine. In in my way of thinking, what about yours? <laughs> That's a good way of thinking of it. I never thought about that, but of course it is. To be under the sea in an octopus's garden. Um, I have a fondness for this song. I think they they really committed to it, and I think the success of this song is because they were just everybody was on, and they 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 knew it was a Ringo style kind of childlike song. Uh, but you listen and you go, the band's all there. They're all all there for them. Are they all on it? I think they're all on yes, it. Yes, they are, yeah. Uh, and um, and for that reason, it's it's kind of masterful. And uh, I don't, you know, it's a, it's a jaunty little, it's a kid's tune in a way, right? I thought, wouldn't it be great if it had been SpongeBob's theme song? <laughs> <laughs> but then, I, you know, too many years too late. But um but then I realized, of course, the Muppets did video versions of this a few times, video cover versions. So that makes a lot of sense. 
but I think that's about it. Is you know, the, just the band's all there, and they're showing the, they're showing Ringo, we're all here for you, and we're gonna we're gonna kick the heck out of this one and nail it. It's kind of cool, Jane, the way they. You know, one of the, maybe one of the things we love about the Beatles is we all like to think we could be, you know, various versions of their their best person and best personalities. They certainly had their faults, as everybody does. But that's one of the things you think of some of the Ringo tracks and Yellow Submarine. The group was all in there, and the sound effects, and the shouting, and the and the good time. Uh, Octopus's Garden, the one we're talking about, like that. Little help from my friends. There's a great mm-hmm. story about the three of them sitting up in the control room of Studio Two at Abbey Road, mm-hmm. while Ringo was trying to do that big vocal. You know, a little help from my friend, where he has to reach up for that big no, way out of his vocal range. And they were all encouraging, no, you can do it, you can do it. Uh, you know, he wanted to uh, have them, one of them sing it or whatever. And and you can hear on the session tape, uh, when he gets it, there's a, you can hear them applaud, applauding on the intercoms. And you get the same feeling with this on the, on the session tapes, those who've listened to them. <clears throat> they were having a good old time running around, uh, blowing uh, a straw into a glass of water to get the bubble sound that you hear. Uh, <laughs> Philip McDonald, who was the engineer, uh, tons of use with the, the compressors and limiters to give you that sort of gargling sound that you hear in the background vocals. So I think you're right. They're all, they're all there for the guy, even though he's mm-hmm. clearly probably not the greatest singer in the band, fair to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it doesn't matter that he's not the greatest singer in the band. I mean, um, I think it's great. One of the things I love about the Beatles is that they do switch up the vocals and there's not always just one lead singer. And uh, it doesn't, you know, Ringo, sure, may, he might not be the world's best singer, but he's got what it takes to sing his own songs. And that's what you need, you know, to deliver his own material. He's got the, he, he knows he knows what he wants and he, he can... Um, yeah, I think he just delivers it. He delivers it like himself, the way, the same way he drums, you know? He doesn't try to be anybody else. And the history of the song is an interesting one. He, he walked out on the Beatles when they were recording the White Album. Uh, mm-hmm. Back in the USSR, Paul McCartney, I guess, as he had want to do, was being, you know, he wanted Ringo to drum a different way. He wasn't happy with how he was drumming it. So Ringo said, mm-hmm. well, piss off, I'm out of here. And he left and he went on holidays, which is why Paul plays drums on Back in the USSR. And you can really hear it. He has a much more clunky drum style, I found. And much more deliberate than Ringo kind of sounds a little more smooth to, to my not trained drummer's ear, <laughs> to my fan's ear. So he goes on holiday in Sardinia and he's chatting with a fisherman during the holiday. And the fisherman told him a story of how octopuses will go around and they'll collect shiny objects that they find on the seabed and they'll set them up almost like a garden around their octopus den. And that's what gave him the inspiration for the song. And so it... Uh, and then there's everybody helping out on it. So that's great. So then we go from Octopus's Garden to the last cut on side one. Oh, she's so. I think it's genius in that the I want you section 
I want you so bad. It's driving me mad. That's all it is. It's just those lyrics. And then I think they sing those lyrics four times. John sings the lyrics four times. And it's just so desperate, kind of uh, a little bit, it was desperate, needy, kind of raw and slightly sexual. And I guess he's, I think yeah, Yoko Ono was his muse for this one. Um, and just starting out that way, just that spareness, um, and then going into the She's So Heavy in the 6-8, and then into that outro section, the three-minute outro. Uh, it's a mind-blowing piece of work, in my opinion. Um, and I think that end bit especially, the swirling, the, the, where the mood comes in and the white noise and the guitar arpeggio, I could just walk into a field and listen to that all day. If I, I'd like to walk into a storm on the moors somewhere in England and have that just in surround sound in the Atmos 5.1 that they mixed it recently in and just have it cranked up. I think it's an amazing, I think three minutes, they could have gone on for nine or 10 minutes easily. You completely read my thoughts. Is <laughs> what, I, I was listening to it yesterday and I'm just going... I just want it to go on. And then just the way it ends, just like it, somebody just took a piece of scissors and cut the tape. Mm -hmm. It just ends. There's, there's no fade out. There's nothing. It just, I mean, it's got everything. It's, I think it's an yeah. amazing song, amazing song. Uh, and it, what it does have is a, in the original mix, a completely mm -hmm. buried organ contribution from Billy Preston. At the end. Yeah. And it, 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 he he's in earlier in the song. You can hear him, right? He's he's in there with the swirling Hammond. Um, but then at the very end, I think they cut him out in in favor of the Moog because the Moog was new and exciting, <laughs> and uh, George just brought it in, and they were all very excited about this. So I think the Moog was actually with the no white noise was a good choice. I wish we could have it all. I wish we could have Billy's in there too, but uh, the arpeggios I think are brilliant on this. Just the arpeggiated guitar. I just can't get enough of that. And also in the I want you section, the Hammond and bass. I want you, I want you some. Uh, I just love that part, you know? I could listen to that all day too. It's, it's a really magnificent piece of work. I have other things to say, but I'll let you say some stuff first. No, I've, hey, you've, I've, I'm happy listening to you. Tell, I know you got two <laughs> pages of notes on this one. What else? What, what else do you have? Um, oh, I like. It reminded me. Well, I thought the, the way that you know that I want you when John's doubling his vocal on his own guitar. Um, I just think that's kind of genius, and because um, at first I thought, well, how could George be doubling him so well, but that was because John was doubling himself. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if he'd had the talk box to do that too? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I had to go down my little Peter Frampton um, uh, rabbit hole and uh, figure out what's the difference between a talk box and a vocorder. And then I found out, oh, Peter Frampton actually played on some George Harrison stuff later on. So I went that this this album's taking me down many side roads. It's kind of fun in that way. Um, but another thing I thought about while listening to this is, you know, Elvis Costello, who obviously was really influenced by the Beatles, has a song on Blood and Chocolate called "I Want You," 
And it's similar in its delivery and its spareness and its kind of desperate, raw, needy, you know, sexual overtones, sinewy kind of approach. And I'm just, I can't help thinking he must have been super influenced by this song. They started recording it at Trident Studios. Mm-hmm. which is in Soho. And mm-hmm. there's a funny story, which you can hear on the session tapes uh, on the the big 50th anniversary version of Abbey Road, where they were running through the song and there was apparently a complaint from one of the neighbors in Soho that they were too loud. And so you can hear John Lennon on the session tape saying, oh, okay, well, we'll... We'll do one more version, the loud version, and then after that, we'll maybe do a soft version and call it a night. So, <laughs> so polite. So, how do we how do we leave side one? Uh, if what would your summation be of the first side of the album? Uh, well, it's a full album, almost really, isn't it? Um, it's even it's it's six so- six songs, but still, it feels very full to me. It feels like once you listen to that, maybe it's partly because I haven't listened to full albums in a long time, but it's a good chunky chunky, satisfying group of songs. Um, you don't feel like you're ripped off, but I think part of that has to do with this last number and the way it ends and the way they just, you know, give you that driving moody thing at the end and then they cut it off. I just think that's a brilliant way to end a side of anything. Um, it's, it's daring and it's, it's ballsy to do that. And I'm really glad they did. That is struck me when I was listening to it. And again, we come from an era when you uh, you really, the artists put a lot of time into how they would sequence a record. And of course they sequenced it into sides because the medium was vinyl and you could only get so much musical information on one side of a vinyl record. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you you lose that in the digital era because there aren't sides, and that's that's what I think you, to put it into context, you have to go. That's how the side ended. You'd be sitting there listening to this massive guitar arpeggios repeating, and the white noise, and this huge cacophony of sound, and all of a sudden it just goes boom and ends. And I can imagine you just be sitting there going, "Holy shit, what was that?" Yeah. You'd think that your turntable had fallen off the table or something like that, you know? Like, oh, did something break? No, that's how it ends. I mean, I would, I would love to go back and listen to that for the first time again, you know, and see how it felt the first time and what I thought, but I can't remember. Um, well, and it's, it, that's to our earlier conversation about the way we experience the Beatles in our lives. It's uh, mm-hmm. we didn't really I, I can't imagine I've asked people who were of age at the time, but what it would have been like hearing Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band for the first time in 1967, putting that on your turntable and just going, I've never heard anything like that. what is this? Uh, and we didn't really get that. Um, so likewise, no. it's a different experience. So it, the song ends, what a side, and mm-hmm. you get up and you flip it over after that. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe you go and pour yourself another drink. Uh, you would need to, I think. Uh, smoke something to relax, whatever you want. And then you put on the second side and it gets kicked off with, again, the way it's sequenced, just the most gentle beautiful guitar intro for cut one on side two here comes the sun here comes the sun I say 
What a song. I love George Harrison. Um, and it's such, it's such a simple song in a way. Um, and it's got that theme of it, it's, it was winter and now it's spring and there's that hope in the air. And um, it's, it's an, un, it, it sounds like such a simple song, but it's not as simple as it sounds. It's tricky. Like most Beatles songs, they make it sound as though it's just a beautiful little sing along number, but it's not, it's got a lot of intricacy. Um, and that's what I like about the Beatles. And that's, this song displays that pretty well, I would say. On side two, there's there's somewhat of an overtone. Uh, they were heavily embedded in their company at the time, Apple. And there was the squabbling going on about who was, whether Alan Klein was going to be their manager and all stuff you can read lots about if, if you want to know more about the uh, how the Beatles sort of fell apart at that time. But the way this song hooks into it is uh, George Harrison basically took a day where he didn't go into the office. And uh, his quote is, uh, Apple was getting to be like school where we had to go in and be businessmen, sign this, sign that. Anyway, it seems as if winter in England goes on forever. So by the time spring comes, you really deserve it. So one day I decided I was going to sag off Apple and I went over to Eric Clapton's house. Uh, the relief of not having to go and see all those dopey accountants was wonderful, and I walked around the garden with one of Eric's acoustic guitars and wrote, Here Comes the Sun. And that's where the song came from. As you do, you know, when you're, you feel like you've got too much work weighing you down, you just head over to Eric Clapton's house and grab <laughs> his acoustic. And why wouldn't a song come out in that context? I would hope so. Um, yeah, I love that. I love that visual, actually, of him just strolling around and everybody else toiling away over the paperwork. And there was a lot of bickering going on, a lot of legalizing. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, you know, a lot of legal business going on. A lot of and crap. I, a lot of crap. That's the a word. A lot of junk. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard to it's hard to remember that because all we see is the music and we see the result. We forget. I mean, I do. I forget how much, you know, uh, accounting and business and and backstabbing and things like that were going on simultaneously in the, you know, on the, in the, on the industry side of the music business, obviously on the business side of the music business, you know what I'm trying to say, mm -hmm. the non-musical. So I don't blame George for taking a day off. That's for sure. The uh, John Lennon does not appear on this track. Uh, they were, they were working on it when Lennon uh, wasn't around early in the sessions. Uh, you have McCartney playing his Rickenbacker bass uh, Ringo with drums, Harrison with a J200 acoustic, and then mm -hmm. his guide vocals on another track, which he, he obviously replaced, uh, put on mm -hmm. another guitar part with the same J200 on another mm -hmm. track. And the other thing on here, of course, is the Moog synthesizer. And, and it's so tasteful. Again, it's, it's not overused. I love it. And uh, I also love all the strings and you know there's flute on here and i'm not a big fan of the flute but of course because george martin arranged it it sounds perfect there's four flutes all together and two piccolos so somehow he got all that in there and it just still manages to sound like it all belongs together um and also with those tricky time signatures in the middle there's a 11 8 and 15 8 in the middle and it just sounds like Oh, not a big deal. Just all in a day's work, you know? 
just a simple song. And lots of uh, lots of hand claps. Now you're still a, you're a working musician. Uh, mm-hmm. Do people actually record hand claps anymore, or is it all is it just a plug in on Pro Tools? Oh, you record clown. It's so fun to record hand claps. I would never want to use a plug-in. I guess you could plug it in. Um, it's fun to do hand claps. It's just like a nice little break in the studio and you, everybody gets in on it. And yeah, I've, all, I've always enjoyed it. And I love hand claps. Big fan of the hand claps. But again, don't overuse them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, you know, like the vibra slap. Just a couple of times on every album. So you come out of Here Comes the Sun and go into track two because... Now... There are two views of this song that I've read, and I'm curious to hear where you come from as a musician. There is the three-part harmonies, which which are done three times, so it's it's a nine it's nine voices, and they're beautiful the way the three voices meld together. Then I've also read critics of the song who say it has an icy detachedness to it. It's, it's just, it sounds icy and not warm and not inviting. Where do you come down? Oh, I'd never heard that before. I didn't, I didn't know. Um, I don't come down on the side of icy. I come down on the side of this is the song I want playing when I walk into the light at the end of times. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just those harmonies. They really get me. I mean, I love harmonies. I think I just, that's partly why I love the Beatles so much is because of their harmonies. And this, you get it, you know, as you say, three times three. And all those intricate chords that George Martin worked out on the piano for them, they're just beautiful. It took them a long time to practice those, but it show it shows. I mean, the result is magnificent. Um, so I don't come down on the side of icy. I might have to re-listen, but I don't know if I want to now. I don't know if I want, I don't want to think about it in those terms. I just want to think about it in it's a song I love. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I, I think it's a beautiful song. I don't come down in the icy either. I can see that. It's a very, uh, it, it, you know, it's with the high vocals and the harmonies and uh, very sparing use of instrumentation. Uh, you know, there's a, there is a lovely, widely available, if you want to search for it, uh, version of it a cappella. They worked on it. In one day, the three-part harmonies, and spent apparently, you know, hours and hours trying to to perfect them, and all singing together. Um, it's, you know, amazing. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, yeah, maybe people think it's icy because of the harpsichord sound, uh, but I happen to love it. I, I love how they just arranged this one. It's so spare. It's just really harpsichord, uh, vocals, and some guitar. Right? Really, that's all it is am i am i mistaken but i just love it and this and the lyrics too i mean they're simple and they're they're universal and they're they're universal truths those lyrics um so that's partly why i love it i'm just gonna, yeah love is all love love is all love is you i mean i think that, yeah i mean I, I, that's right and you know because the sky is blue, it makes me, what is it? Because the sky is blue, it makes me cry. I've got to find it now. Yeah, because the sky is blue, it makes me cry. I mean, who, why, didn't every, why doesn't everybody think of that lyric? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and supposedly in one of those, those John Lennon stories that, uh, you know, that sometimes you have to revisit because, of course, we all know that uh, 
memory is not always the most reliable thing. But he talked about it being inspired by uh, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And he mm-hmm. heard Yoko playing it at the piano and he, he got her to play it, reverse the chords. And then I read a thing by a musicologist where he said, nah, it's not, it's not it. Not true. Nice story, but that was not the case. So. Yeah. And, you know, he might've been inspired by, by, I mean, Moonlight Sonata is one of the most beautiful pieces of music ever written for sure. So why not have that as your inspiration? But maybe he once he moved away from the, from the room where Yoko was playing, he just made his own version of the Moonlight Sonata. So, so to me, on the second side, it kind of gets. I know you talk about the whole second side suite, but you can chop mm-hmm. it up. Yet, yeah, to me, here comes the sun stands alone, and because stands alone, and then we come into. You never give me your money, which of course flows into Sun King, me, Mister Mustard, Polythene Pam. She came in through the bathroom window, and then to me it ends, and then you get the last section that's Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight, and the end. Uh, but let's let's start with You Never Give Me Your Money. Maybe you can explain to this as a music person what the chord is or what he's playing. But I don't know if there's if there's a true Beatles fan in the world who doesn't hear those first few notes just sparsely played in the piano and McCartney's You Never Give Me Your Money, which you know was written about all the the problems around Apple at the time. And you can you can almost hear the sadness in his voice. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's it's amazing. And uh, I think just the, the way that intro comes in. And I love the thing I like about this album is the intros are short. Um, but that's just dun, 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 dun. and then the way McCartney's voice comes in on its own first, but then somehow there's a little effect put in on where he say, starts to sing funny paper. As soon as he sings funny paper, you hear, I think it's the doubling effect. And just there, it just, you know, George Martin somehow just slides it in subtly and then it builds. And then on the second verse, that's where the harmonies come in. So they really hold back again, that, that, ability to show restraint you know yeah it, it it just and you're so right about that vocal bit it's just it starts off a very plaintive vocal you never your money and then you know fun and it just the whole thing just opens up mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I don't know what's done and i don't know i'm trying to look here and see what the what the chord was it must be a minor chord because it's a sad chord it is a minor and then it goes into D minor. So, yeah, you're right. It's a minor chord. Um, and then, obviously, once they get to the second section, the, I guess they call it the bridge, but I'm just calling it the second part. Out of college, money spent, you know, future pay or rent, they go to that major. This is a great example of McCartney. One of the genius things about Paul McCartney, one of the many, is his ability to take bits of songs that he's he's obviously jotted down or ha- and stitch them together into a whole because if you if you break down this song you have the beautiful plaintive almost ballad like you never give me and that and then the out of college it's a different song it's yeah this song is three songs in one really yeah and uh it's like it, it's it's almost like a biography of the beatles maybe in one song that's the way i was kind of looking at it because you've got the first innocent part 
um, sort of, it's almost like a looking back, a reflective. And then the second part is like starting out and you got lots of bravado and you're in college, you got no money, but you've got the freedom and that's all jaunty and the, oh, the magic feeling, nowhere to go. And then in the third part, it's one sweet dream, pick up the bags and get in the limousine. And you're just like, you've done it all. And now you're just taking off. I think they're taking, you know, taking off to the beach, maybe. It's a great summation of this. I love that. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, you know, it just seems like that. Uh, because also <laughs> further down, you know, then they're doing Sun King. We'll get to that, obviously. But it just um, seems like they just, in that third part, they're just, uh, just, just get me to the beach. <laughs> yeah. Well, McCartney says, I'm just, I'm just reading this little... Uh, uh, it was written with Alan Klein in mind. They brought in Klein uh. to help sort out their finances. McCartney later said the song was written with Klein in mind, saying it's basically a song about no faith in the person. He added that the line, one sweet dream, pack up the bags, get in the limousine, was based on his trips in the country with Linda to get away from the tense atmosphere with the Beatles. So there you mm -hmm. go. You were uh, you were pretty much bang on point there, my friend. Somewhat, somewhat accurate. So so then we, this is where you, you kind of get the suite of songs we were talking about. It goes into Sun King, which is the next cut. And one of the things I love the most about, about it is just the transition or the segue that you get from the fade out of You Never Give Me Your Money and into the Sun King with the crickets and the chimes and the bells. What does this song do for you? I love that. I agree with you. Um, I love the way that they carry over. But I guess those were tape loops that Paul had that he brought, little field, field recordings and stuff that he'd done. So I love the fact that it, the crickets carry over and the birds carry over from one to the... I mean, this is seamless, you know? And so the opening of Sun King uh, opens with those crickets and some bass guitar and some birds. And I just think that's kind of a genius move as well to have... I mean, because it's the medley, I guess they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, each song, the transitions make them go as, mu as much one into the other as possible. And I think they obviously really achieved that well. And this song, it's sort of, for, to me, it has a similar feeling to Because, because it's kind of like the sky is opening up even more than in Here Comes the Sun to me. Uh, it's got that big sound, that big open sky sound, warmth everything's going to be okay. We're out, we're in nature. It's all about, uh, you know, the power of, of mother nature and, and we're fine. We're going to be fine kind of thing. That's the, that's the feeling I get from it. it it's, and it's a happy, I'll, I'll, here's some musicology stuff for you and you can decode this. You can decode yes. this for all of us. Bring uh, it on. Okay. Uh, the song is an example of major ninth harmony in the C major ninth chord on the mm -hmm. here comes the sun above the tonic mm -hmm. C major triad, both mm -hmm. B seventh and D ninth combined in the vocals to form a suitably lush fanfare for the monarch himself. Can you decode that for me? <laughs> for the monarch being the sun king? Yes. Well, I love a, I love a ninth chord. Uh, and obviously, what, you know, if you have a triad, that's great. Triad harmony is nice. Three, three notes, C, E, and G. That's pretty. Uh, but when you add a, a B, B natural, and then you add a D on top of that, you're going to get some, you're going to get overtones that occur that wouldn't have occurred with just your triad. You create a magic that... Uh, almost um, an unintended magic 
when you add different harmonics on top, not harmonics, but different notes on top of your your basic triad chord. So um, I haven't picked apart this this uh, song chordally either, um, but those I'm, that must be what I mean when I when I'm talking about the bigness of the vocals and the, the the lushness of the way that it sounds. It's not just triad chords; it's ninth chords, it's altered chords, and that's what Because was doing as well. I think they had diminished chords and augmenteds, and you know, it's really is symphonic and it's jazz and it's not just pop. So, so Jane is a songwriter. When, when you're doing this, and I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but I find this fascinating as a non-musician, and, and it's, it's so great to talk to somebody who is. When you're sitting writing a song, so for example, when they were writing this, are you sitting thinking, what we need here is a triad, or what we, do some do that, or is it just, that's just what they felt and what they happened to do. And the reason it felt the way it did is because it was a triad. It wasn't that they sat down and said, we need this, we should do that. It just, they did what they did and it turned out to be what it was, if that makes any sense. I think the latter is probably better. You're going to get a better result than if you think, okay, um, intellectually, what we need here is maybe a, a ninth chord or something because that would go well with the chord before. I think if you're going from a place where you hear it and then you write it, that's a better place to go from. Like I hear that, I hear that, I hear that note there, la, and then you find out what that note is and you find a way to fit it into your song and into the chord. That's a better way to go. Uh, more musical, it's going to sound more natural. It's going to be more inspired. And sometimes it can be disappointing because like, oh no, that's just a triad. <laughs> I'm not as smart as I thought. I thought I thought I was writing something really, really interesting, but I'm just writing one, four, five triad, C, F, G, oh well. You know, so there's always that. You think, oh, this song's really cool. It sounds so different. No, it's just triads. <laughs> so it can go both ways. And then we go, it, it goes right into another John Lennon song, uh, which he started writing in India, and he said it was inspired by a newspaper story about a miser who concealed his cash wherever he could to prevent people from forcing him to spend it. <clears throat> and you just get that lovely, that lovely Ringo drum fill that just gets you from do-do-do-do-do, and then gets you right into it. Uh, I love this song, it's, it's one of my, it, it's just a fun song. I love Mr. Mustard. And, you know, it's brilliant because upon further examination, I realized that Sun King ends with the one and two beat, the first and second beat of the bar. And Mean Mr. Mustard's, mean Mr. Mustard starts with beats three and four. So it goes, dun, dun, mean Mr. Mustard. And, and so that's a, just a brilliant, I mean, Ringo played it. And it's just a brilliant transition as far as I'm concerned. It's just genius. They didn't decide to finish the chord on that song before and then start a new chord, a new bar on Mean Mr. Mustard. They, they cut up the bar. Uh, genius. You know, such a small little thing, but just makes so much difference that not a lot of people wouldn't think of doing it that way. Well, the, the whole way that the second side, you know, we talked earlier about Paul McCartney having this amazing ability to take snippets of songs and build them into a song and it's i mean his 
his ultimate meister work of doing that is side two of Abbey Road, which was largely Paul McCartney and, and George Martin, uh, who had the idea to put together this whole suite of songs. John Lennon, depending what interview you read, was there were times where he thought it was a great idea, and then there were times where he didn't like it. So again, one of those what day are you interviewing him? Uh, right. One of those things. But <clears throat> yeah, what you're talking about is is just little, just stitches it together and carries it right through. The According to the information I have, Sun King and Mean Mr. Mustard were recorded straight through. Uh, so they went straight through as as one track. Um, and, yeah. uh, it, it, and it's just, it's yeah, it's just a, a fun little song. Uh, and you read the you know the lyrics and it's just a little ditty that he'd written years ago a leftover piece of song but it just fits so well i feel kind of a little sad for a little sorry for mr mustard actually i know he's mean but i do feel sorry because he he's sitting in his park alone and he's just shouting profanities <laughs> at people go as, as they go by and <laughs> it reminds me of um and uh yeah what is it what is it he's saying um but it reminds me of uh, another Elvis Costello song called Anywhere You Hang Your Head, which is about, here comes Mr. Misery. He's looking for a place for his mouth to shoot. And uh, it's to me, that's another place where Elvis Costello was influ influenced by the Beatles. Influenced? Influenced. Um, so I, got, I went down another... Uh, Elvis Costello, Elliot Smith rabbit hole on this one. <laughs> because then that led me to Elliot Smith's song, Miss Misery. So I just thought those all stemmed. I think Mr. Mustard was the forefather of, of me. Mr. Mustard was the forefather of all these other pop songs that came after. And then that goes right into <clears throat> Polythene Pam. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, uh, Lennon's in, in a 1980, 1980 interview, uh, he says, that was me remembering a little event with a woman in Jersey and a man who was England's answer to Allen Ginsberg. I met him when we were on tour and he took me back to his apartment and I had a girl and he had one and he wanted me to meet her. He said she dressed up in polythene, which she did. She didn't wear jackboots and kilts. I just sort of elaborated that part. Perverted sex in a polythene bag, just looking for something to write about. <laughs> and, and there you go. And he sings it in a very strong, you know, you can take the, the lad out of Liverpool, but you can't take the Liverpool out of the lad. Sings it in a very strong Scouse accent. A little locker talk, this one, you know? It's a bit... Sexist, I guess, is the word, maybe. A little bit, you know, because John Cosby, he was a bit of a dog at times. He was a bit, he was maybe a little bit, um, I don't know what to say. Uh, he had, just the way he he speaks about, I mean, it's not very becoming. She's, you could say she was, uh, what's the word? You could say she was, she make the news of the world. Yeah, she's the kind of a girl that makes the news of the world, which would have completely gone over my head and most people's heads in North America when it came out. Yeah. News of the world is a tabloid, was, it's not around anymore, uh, was a the classic tabloid newspaper. When we moved to the UK, it was still around, and the Brits refer to it as news and screws uh, mm -hmm. because that's it's all about who's getting off with who, and it's, uh, it, it's yeah, it's a trashy newspaper. It's trashy, right? And, you know, just saying, you know, she, she would make the news of the world. She was attractively built. You know, I mean, she could have been a lot more rude, I suppose, but yeah. I don't know. This song, 
it's just, uh, I, I just see it as kind of a locker talk, little throwaway number, but uh, again, well played, well delivered, you know, played with heart, <laughs> played with soul. <laughs> oh, I, I, I just, I love the acoustic guitar. It is dumb, dumb, dumb. It's great. You know, and, and uh, it, it just sounds like they're having a hell of a time playing it. Uh, it does, you know, absolutely. It, it, it sounds happy. Uh, you can hear Paul McCartney. You can hear Melon, yeah. And then John Lennon says, great. And then uh, near the end of the song, uh, you hear Lennon go, well, listen to that, Mal. Uh, Mal Evans was their longtime road manager. So he's, he's, he gets him into the song a little bit. It's, it's, uh, and then, you know, I'll look out. And then... We got into the next cut, uh, lovely Paul McCartney story song. It is. It's a great, you know, about these, uh, what were they, Applescrofts they were called, the fans. Well, groupies, I guess you'd call them. And they, one of them found a ladder outside his house and went in the window and then opened the door for the rest of them. And they all came in and, and you know, the story and they, they stole some things from him, I suppose. So, I mean, it is based in truth, this one. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting. Yeah, it, it's a, yeah. It, it's a lovely story song, and mm-hmm. you do when you read. You know, he played detective, right? So he and and it was a rich girl protected by her silver spoon. You know, and that's now, right. And now she sucks her thumb and wonders uh, so it, by the banks of her own lagoon. But it's uh, and then the whole bit about. Uh, about you, you can't keep something like that a secret. Sunday's on the phone to Monday, Tuesday's on the mm-hmm. phone to me. I'm going to find That's out. Right. <laughs> it's a genius line. I love that line, you know. Uh, and it's, you know, this song, obviously, it's about more than one thing. And it comes from the little different pl- places that he's putting it together. Uh, I, I like this song a lot. Um, I hear that the line about the uh, quit, quit the police department, got myself a steady job. That part, he was in a cab in New York City, I think, and the uh, and the driver had X police on his ID or something like that. So, because you you think, but isn't police department kind of a steady job? But you know, now he's driving cab, and that's his steady job compared to whatever the you know in the, working in the police department. <laughs> I just like that, and it's funny because my interpretation of it before I read that story was again, you know, McCartney was playing detective, trying to find out who the girls were who broke into his place, and then he thought, ah, you know, so I quit the police department. I've had enough of that. Going to go back to my steady job, which is being a rock star. Uh, That's right. Which was what yeah. I got out of it. <laughs> so, yeah, and you can imagine feeling that way too. It's like, why am I being sidelined into this situation? Why do I have to put up with this? And and uh, and then just wanted to go back and play songs again, you know. So I talked earlier about how I, I think you can you can divide the side up. So that to me ends kind of a sequence, and then we change gears and we get into golden slumbers, and it's another one of those those lovely piano driven type songs that that Paul McCartney could just seems to be able to write it well and and it's another one again I do, I'm looking to see what the chord is but to me start it sounds again it sounds like a sad chord it sounds like so it, it must be a minor chord once throws away interestingly it starts also on an A minor and goes to the D minor so that's the same as you never give me your money yeah uh, and then again, it, 
on the second section, it goes back to the C major. So it starts in the relative minor, which is A minor is the relative minor of C. So it's kind of genius songwriting from a harmony perspective. They really do have a way with their chords that's almost impossible. They're like, you know, the way jazz musicians always trying to copy, always trying to make their chords sound like Duke Ellington chords. There's just no way. Duke, Duke Ellington had a way of doing it. And it's the same with the Beatles. They had a way of voicing their chords, of writing the, the progressions that it's almost impossible to ever try to match that. Very emotional. And uh, just starting with that that line where, you know, once there was a way to get back homeward, it's just such a, a kind of emotional, emotionally driven line. Everybody knows what that feels like. You know, everyone knows what it feels like. And then the fact that they said, once there was a way to get back homeward, once there was a way to get back home. So they use both. They don't just stick with just homeward. Uh, they use both those words. So they really are driving home that sense of we we're trying to get there. You know, we're trying to get home. But then, what, like you say, when it comes into the golden slumber section, and, and he just digs in and gets and gets raunchier again, and then you've got that trombone, the brass in the background, just also pretty raunchy, you know, lots of dynamics, lots of crescendos. It's amazing. Based on a poem called uh, Cradle Song, uh, a lullaby by the dramatist Thomas Decker, uh, the poem appears in a 1603 comedy, uh, Patient Grizzle. McCartney would have seen sheet music for this lullaby at his father's home in Liverpool, left on the piano by his stepsister Ruth. And mm. unable to read music, he created his own music. So mm. he, he uses the first stanza of the original poem, minor word changes, and then adds a single lyric line repeated with minor variation. Uh, and did not credit Decker at all. And Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Ah, well, I guess Decker wasn't around to uh, <laughs> no. sue him. He knew he was in the clear. He's like, oh, got that one past him. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's, that slides into carry that weight. Um, and, I mean, just... You know, brass instruments, which you talked about, <clears throat> uh, mm. and and in you come. Uh, what are your thoughts on 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 this song? Oh, I love it. Um, I love it. It's. It, I mean, the fact that they're all singing in unison. I just kind of see it as a bit of a chant. the melody it's great you know it's a very basic melody but it's a real sing-along song uh but the fact that they're all singing in unison which they didn't do very often it's like they're almost singing to themselves to each other doing like a team a team chant like they got their arms around each other's shoulders and they're just going to be shouldering the same burden going forward you know the, the burden of being the beatles really is the way i look at it if we want to get biographical no, I think you're bang on. Uh, Ian McDonald, the music critic who I mentioned earlier, uh, interpreted the lyric as an acknowledgement by the group that nothing they would do as individual artists would equal what they had achieved together. And they would always carry the weight of their Beatle past. And mm -hmm. McCartney later said that it was about the business difficulties at Apple. And then John Lennon said McCartney was singing about all of us, making yeah. it that much more poignant. It feels that way. And uh, again, I, I don't know, it's just a genius song. And the fact, but uh, the, the, for me, it's always been Golden Slumbers and Carry That Weight have always been together as a song. Mm -hmm. They've always been one, even though they're different, obviously. But it, I, 
you know, almost have to go back and go, didn't I always think of them as the same song? It's sometimes with this album to separate things out and to try to figure out, oh, right, that that part there is part of that song over there. Because it's got so many little bits, not just in the medley section, but in the, the first side as well, that you forget, oh, that's part of that one particular song, you know? Yep, and and, the, and it was, to your point, it was recorded. Uh, Golden Slumbers Carry That Weight was recorded at the same time. So they, they, didn't, they didn't break it up like that. Uh, but yeah, and the other thing that McCartney has pointed out, and it's, again, uh, the, term, the term heavy uh, had a very different meaning back then. It was like, man, man, that's real heavy. And it, it's kind of lost that context, but because he talks about it, it was a really heavy album. And by heavy, he just meant, yeah, they were feeling, you know, the the weight of all of this pressure and expectation and business things on top of them. And mm-hmm. so carry that weight. Yeah, but then by that being heavy, it made the album kind of heavy in the other meaning of the word, right? In the in the she's so heavy way, because uh, she's so heavy. I think he's trying to say she's so kind of awesome you know she's so profound and fantastic and the way that that that, that you use heavy in that wow that's heavy man (laughs) not not in the kind of um it's a weight on our shoulders kind of way so this album maybe is both uh and then that goes into appropriately called the end um which they worked on before the end of the album uh as the sequence of working on songs uh but a couple of things. I mean, the thing that stands out is Ringo's drum solo. They recorded, uh, I believe it was seven takes. And I think on take seven, that was the take that, that they used. And the interesting thing about, about that, even on the original mix, the original recording, is the way that stereo was mixed back then, or at least by George Martin, was uh, hard panned. So you had, you had drums and bass on one side, and then you had vocals and, and uh, guitars over on the other side. And that's that's it was, so it was a very hard pan, let, not like now where you have a stereo picture created in front of you. And with the exception being, they recorded these drums in both channels. Mm. So it's one of the few Beatles recordings of the era that originally was truly recorded for stereo. I love that drum solo <laughs> and because uh, it's all kick drum and toms, you know, I don't think he plays much else. I think it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he, you know, didn't, he, he wasn't a big drum solo guy. And again, to put it in context, this is back in an era when uh, you would have had drum solos going on. This is, uh, we're getting into, we're getting into Pink Floyd experimental, uh, that type of era. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that far off Led Zeppelin, uh, the yep. Who, and, and extended for extended song forms were starting to come into play, right? So, so things were getting longer. And there's a lot of long songs on this album, but I don't think of it in the same way as I think of a long Led Zeppelin song or a long Who song, mm-hmm. or, or you know, yeah. And then the other notable thing about the song is the guitar playing, where the three Beatles. <laughs> All trade solos. I'll, I'll, I'll let you tell that part of the story. I, I just think it's it's fascinating the way they did that. Well, I love it. And um, the fact that you have Paul first 
and they, they trade twos, I guess, if you want to put it in, they trade two bars each. So it's a uh, Paul first, then George, then John, right? That's how it goes. Yeah. And um, I, I'm not really a guitar aficionado, I have to say. So I don't know what kind of guitars they're each playing. Well, what I can tell you is that there aren't a ton of studio pictures from those sessions to verify it completely. But based on what they were using during the Let It Be sessions, which came immediately before the Abbey Road sessions, I would guess that Lennon and McCartney are both likely playing Epiphone Casinos and Harrison is playing either a Gibson Les Paul, a Fender Strat or a Fender Rosewood Telecaster. So there you go. Carry on. But it just, each solo, once you realize, oh, that's what's going on, it's Paul and George and John, you can really hear the differences in their style of playing and the differences in their personality. Because Paul's is kind of, it's it's pretty clean. It's, it's a little bit safer, but it's really good. It's really musical and melodic. Then you get George in there, who's uh, got some, got soul and melody and uh, more interpretive. And then you get John, who's just kind of rocking it out, gritty, dirty. Uh, and then it just repeats three times. And I love it. It's amazing. What a genius idea to have. And then after that, just a crash and you go to just, again, just this beautiful little piano. And of course the, you know, the fantastic, fantastic line to end. And that line, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make only once. They just sing it once and that's it. And that shows that's all, you, you know, that's all we need. You don't, you don't need to sing it over and over again. They could have probably repeated that ad nauseum and uh, everybody would have been very happy, but they chose to only sing it once, which is kind of beautiful. And then you get a nice long pause and in comes a little ditty, Her Majesty. Now, th now this is, t to me, here's, I'm, I'm reading way too much in this, but Paul McCartney mm -hmm. loves to, in his solo career, went on to do this numerous times where he has a track that you think, that's the end. That's how you finish the album. And then he comes back with just like a little, just a little dessert afterwards. Um, whether it's a reprise of the song, I think of uh, Backseat of My Car, which is the mm -hmm. last song on uh, Ram, where the song kind of ends and there's an orchestral buildup and then it comes back with the do 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 drum fill and then kind of rocks out. On Venus and Mars, there's Listen to What the Man mm -hmm. Said, great last track, you know, the wonder of it all, baby, goes out and then finishes up with an instrumental called Crossroads Theme. Just oh, comes, right. comes back. So here you get the perfect track to end the album. And then you get this little ditty, which has a story behind it. The original placement of, of Her Majesty oh, yeah. was between Mean Mr. Mustard 
and Polythene Pam. So that mm-hmm. crash that you hear at the beginning of Her Majesty is the end of Mean Mr. Mustard. And then That's right. it goes into Polythene Pam and the guitar note is cut off half, which is which was meant to segue into it. Someday I'm gonna make a mind. So the story is that the original sequencing had it between Mean Mr. Mustard Her Majesty, and then Polythene Pam. And McCartney didn't like it there. So he said, well, take it out. And back in those days, kids, uh, you took out a razor, and when you edited tape, you physically sliced the tape and stitched it back Mm -hmm. together. Uh, There was was no digital computerized editing for the very good reason that computers didn't really exist. Uh, Mm -hmm. The rule in the studio amongst the engineers was, don't throw anything out that the Beatles do because they'll come back and ask you for it later. So this particular engineer who was doing it just spooled it on to the end of a tape. Mm-hmm. It was a tape operator, a guy named John Kurlander, and he just stitched it on. So then mm-hmm. when they were listening to the playback for the purposes of, of doing uh, an acetate to take home and listen to, this went through and was put on the acetate. This forgotten little bit that McCartney had exercised from the whole sequence, and he went... Mm-hmm. I love it. Sounds mm. let's leave it in. And that, that's right. And that happenstance is how it happened. Yeah, I love that story. Actually, I do I do remember that story. I thought for some reason you were talking about the subject of the song. But um yeah, that's a great story. And um and the fact that they actually left it there. They didn't say, okay, actually, no, let's let's not do that. That's because the end should be the end. They said, no, let's put on let's put in Her Majesty. It's just a little little hidden joke it's kind of beautiful that way and it also makes you forget that you're sad for a moment it makes you forget that you're sad about that this is the last Beatles album so Jane uh final thoughts about about Abbey Road I've, I've got one little takeaway that I told you about earlier but what are your when you look back in this album what are your what do you take away what does it mean to you uh what's where does it sit in in your pantheon of of music I think it's uh, it's definitely top 10 uh, albums for me of all time. And so many of my favorite songs are on there. Um, and I just love the fact that it's not overproduced, but it's just produced enough. It's precise without sounding precious. You know, it's still so musical and natural. And somehow they managed to, I, so much kudos to George Martin. They're so lucky to have had him to work with, you know, what a talent and and an understated, maybe under-celebrated talent at times. And um, I just love everything he did with them. And the Leslie guitar sound, the tom-toms, the Moog, the arpeggiated guitars, all of it somehow just made this beautiful sounding album. And uh, it was really, really nice to just dive into it again because it's been a long time since I've listened to an, an album you know, top to bottom, both sides for a long time. So thank you for that. Incredible musicianship, ensemble playing. They're on, I'm just, you know, the fact that they played so much of this live, uh, it's remarkable. You just don't hear that anymore. And the joy shows and their musicianship is just so strong. And obviously their alchemy, chemistry. So here's the last little weird thing. Because the lore around the album is that even amongst interviews the Beatles have done themselves, which again, showing how unreliable memory can be for all of us. Mm 
Um, the general vibe was we kind of knew this might be our last album. You know, things weren't going well. We'd grown apart. Uh, Let It Be was a, a shit show, for lack of a better description. And uh, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Uh, and we wanted to get together and do something properly again. And we got George Martin. And so, so that's the lore. They kind of knew that it, it, was, it was the end. But a tape surfaced late last year. Uh, Beatles historian Mark Lewison, who is the go-to man, if, uh, if, if you're a Beatles fan or just a new Beatles fan, uh, pick up his The Complete Beatles Recording Sessions by Mark Lewison. And it, it goes through every single recording session yeah. at Abbey. It is, it is uh, really well-researched. So Mark Lewison mm -hmm. got a hold of this tape. It was a tape that was made on the 8th of September, 1969 of a business meeting at Apple. Ringo was in the hospital and the other three Beatles were there to meet and John Lennon turned on a portable tape recorder and you hear him at the start of the tape saying, Ringo, you can't be here, but this is so you can hear what we're discussing. And what they talk about on September 8th, 1969, after Abbey Rhodes put to bed, done. So they're, they're finished. What, what everybody thought that they thought was the finish was finished. What they talked about is a plan to make another album and a single for release in time for Christmas. Uh, and that just, to me, puts an oh. entirely different light on everything that happened. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, it was newly... Wow. Yeah, newly revealed. It, it just... It, completely puts a different light on everything and it's it's not hearsay it's on a tape and they're wow. and, and they were and they talked about putting out a single they also talked on this tape uh lennon wanted a new formula for assembling their next album four songs a piece from paul george and himself and two from ringo uh hmm. he said that they should they should they should declare authorship of their songs hitherto presented to the public as a, as a sacrosanct partnership, but they should be individually credited. Uh, and then hmm. Paul, in the meeting, sounding, uh, quoting the article, sounding a little relaxed, um, responds to the news that George has equal standing as a composer with John and himself by saying something mm -hmm. along the lines of, I thought until this album that George's songs weren't that good. Uh, and then George sort of came back and said, well, that's a matter of taste all down the line. People have liked my songs. And then they, right. both, they both react by telling Paul that nobody else in the group dug Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Uh, yeah. and, and that it would be a good idea if he gave songs of that kind, uh, maybe to outside artists. So, right. so Interesting. It, isn't that fascinating? Jane, it has been an absolute pleasure. Talk. I, I love talking music, and it, it is so great to talk music with a real musician. I love it. Oh, oh likewise, Paul. It's such, a, it's such an honor to, to sit here and talk to me. I can't think of anything I'd rather do other than actually playing music, talk about music. I don't, I don't get a chance to do it enough, so thank you very much for inviting me and, uh, and to 
getting me to listen to this, do this deep dive. It's just been a complete joy this week and really took my mind off all the troubles in the world. <laughs> so thank you all that well, for all that. We will do it again sometime. Uh, Jane Gowan, you can find her at janegowan.com and you can find her band at therealshade.com. Jane, thank you so much and you take care. Yeah, you too, Paul. Thanks very much. So again, you can find Jane at therealshade.com. The band is on Twitter with the handle Real Shade Music. And Jane is on Twitter with the handle Jane Gowan. Uh, I would love it if you followed me and this show on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> I'm kind of new on there. I could use some followers. So come on, throw me a bone, will you? Give me a follow. The handle for both uh, Twitter and Instagram is the underscore RomyCast, R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T, the underscore RomyCast. That's on Twitter and on Instagram, or just do a search for Paul Romanuk. There's a, a few on there, but mine is the one with the Walrus Was Paul podcast logo. So give me a follow if you could. The podcast website itself is RomyCast.com. And please do join our Facebook group. I'm trying to get that going. Do a search on Facebook to find the Walrus Was Paul podcast. Ask to join and I'll let you on in. Or just go to the website, romicast.com, and click on the link at the website. And same thing, ask to join, and I will take care of that. If you enjoy the podcast, a positive review on Apple or Spotify or the podcast provider of choice is always most welcome and very much appreciated. The next episode features a Canadian indie music legend, one of the founding members of a band called The Lowest of the Low. Remember them? You certainly do if you're a Canadian indie fan of a certain era. Stephen Stanley will join me next time to talk about his album pick, Magical Mystery Tour, track by track. That is next time on The Walrus Was Paul with me, Paul Romanuk. So long for now. One, two, three, four. Do you ever get tired of being Beatles? Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. Oh, here we go. Hey, Can we just have a little less guitar in here for us? Oh, that's all right. The bit that John finally got just after that, and we were both of a do what we wanted to do. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep that one. Market fab. <laughs>